Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, That Week, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in December 2017. All the stories focus on a series of fortunate and unfortunate events in the span of just one week. In our first story, Janelle Bowers tells of a week full of family illness, reconciliations, and breakups. Uh, so in October of 2016, so October a year ago, I was, had just started a new job. I was like pretty in over my head. Uh, my relationship with my parents was like, or with my mother, I should say, was entirely in the toilet. Like my brother had just gotten married. I didn't go to his wedding because my relationship with my mother was so bad. I had broken up with my partner for three and a half years, but we were still living together, so that's always really fun. (laughs) Um, And I had taken a much-needed trip to Detroit to see some friends. I had a great weekend, and I was driving home. It was the day before Halloween, and I get a call from my younger brother, which was odd because he doesn't ever call anyone, ever. Even if you call him, he doesn't answer the phone or call you back. But he called me, and I was really excited. I was like, hi. And he said, Alan, who's our stepfather, had a stroke today, a massive stroke. And they don't think he's going to make it. You need to get home. Now, home for me, home where my parents live, is in Portland, Oregon. And so I made arrangements, and I, I found the, my next, the, the next flight out that I could, which was uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning out of Chicago the next day, Halloween. And I got up that morning, and I remember it being this beautiful sunrise, but I was, like, angry at the sun for rising that morning. Like, how dare you be pretty on this day where I didn't know if the only real parent that I had ever had would live. And I hadn't spoken to my mother in six months, and she was going to be there. And there was nothing in me that was ready for this trip. It's like the first time your parents get sick, it's the next step of maturity. There's like marriage, and for some of us, there's children. But then there's this sort of changing of the guards that happen when your parents get sick. And all I could think to myself was, I am not ready to do this and I got on the plane and I thought about how my stepfather my my mother and my stepfather lived together but they hadn't been married in three years when they separated their house was still underwater from the recession and so they were staying together until the house was not underwater any longer and at this point it wasn't my stepfather just called me a week before and he said I can't live with this woman any longer we're selling this house I'm putting it on the market after after Halloween and I was so worried because now they lived together. Now they were tied together because he had he'd had this illness. And I got there, and I went to see him, and he wasn't out of the woods at all. And his neurologist said, we don't know what's going to happen. 75% of people that have this kind of stroke, they don't live. And the other 25 that survive it wish they had not. 
and I was confronted with my mother who does this weird hand-wringing, worrying thing that like drives me fucking batshit crazy where she's like telling me how to park at the hospital and I'm thinking, mother, I just traveled 2,700 miles alone. I can figure out how to park a car in a hospital parking lot. And it was all so much. And I was sort of just breathing and staying with it and staying through it and trying to be there for my stepfather. And I went to the hospital for the first time. And he said, Nellie, he couldn't talk very well, but he said, Nellie, come here, come here. I need to talk to you. Come here, come here. And through his slurs, I went over there and he pulled me close to him and he pulled me down and he said, I need you to go to my house and go to my nightstand. And on the nightstand, you're gonna find a canister. And in that canister is some weed. <laughs> and next to it is a pipe and a lighter. I need you to bring that to me. I just need to smoke a little bit of Gorilla Glue and I'll be fine. <laughs> and we, I let, I, I mean, what do you, what do you do? The man can't move his entire right side. He, he's saying this through Bell's palsy on his face and saying, no, I just need the Gorilla Glue. And I went, oh my God, you're going to be fine. You're <laughs> going to be fine. And Pretty soon his daughter showed up, and me and my mom had been really awkward still. And as much as my mother and I might butt heads, we could always bond over one thing, which is our mutual irritation <laughs> of the beauty pageant that is my stepsister. <laughs> she walks in the hospital room that two days after his stroke, she, sh she decided to sleep in a little bit. She shows up at 12.30 with a full face of, y'all, she, she had on fake eyelashes. <laughs> she, and like little rhinestones in her, in her eyeliner. <laughs> like full on LuLaRoe, the, just the whole collection, the whole thing. And my mother and I looked at each other across the hospital bed and I knew we would be okay. <laughs> and she sent me text messages that said, I have to get out of here, her perfume is killing me. Please stay in case the neurologist comes and anything happens that we actually need to know. And that started the beginning of healing. My family comes from that sort of family, you mean, you make fun of people, that's what you do to get through hard times, and so we, we spent the next week sort of taking shifts. Who was going to deal with Heidi this time? Who was going to get a break? Luckily, one of my best friends lives in Portland and she's a, she's a, a Buddhist chaplain. She's um, a clinical psychologist. She's also just one of the funniest people you could ever hope to meet. She was fantastic to have around. Um, she listened deeply hilarious. I was able to like really bitch at her about my mom's infuriating behavior, her controllingness, and she was able to say, look, she's compartmentalizing at the huge task she has in front of her, and what you need to do is grow up and go to the grocery store and cook your mother a meal and then mow her lawn. <laughs> and I went, you're right, I do. 
And at one point, the, the last night that Heidi, the, the, the beauty pageant was around, me and my mom decided we would get a break together and we went out to a Mexican restaurant and we drank tequila all night. <laughs> and we laughed. And we sat out on our back porch and I drank tequila and my mom smoked a bunch of weed out of a bong. And we just laughed and laughed at my stepfather and how he used to turn up the Footloose soundtrack as high as it would go. And our old black lab pit bull mix named Lucy would get so pissed off at his, like, his, his, his yell singing and his dancing and she would just bark and jump at him. And it would be seven o'clock in the morning and my mother and I would think we were gonna like lose our minds, but in retrospect, it's the funniest thing we could ever both think of. We found out that my stepfather would, he would have a long road ahead of him, but he was going to get transferred to a rehab and they were, they were hopeful about his rehabilitation. So after this long week spent of being confronted with all of these family things and just kind of having to let go and realize like, okay, actually, y you just need to grow up. So I got on a plane and I was coming home and I thought about how I left 10 years earlier and how I had sort of run away from my family and acted like I was this poor orphan child, but the reality is, is that whatever dysfunction that we had had, I chose to disengage and my family was here and they needed me. And I got home and work had blown the fuck up. Like, it's way too nerdy and no one cares about why, but this project had just fallen apart and it was on me to fix it. And in the past, I would have probably like gotten defensive and thrown this like temper tantrum about it. But there was none of that. The, the work just needed to be done. And so I did it. And then my, that partner that I lived with had a conversation with me as soon as I got home, letting me know that he had met someone and he thought it was pretty serious. They were going to continue to see each other. And that was the day I got back, all of those things. And then the next day, it was Tuesday. It was November 8th. And I put on my suit coat, and I put on some red lipstick, and I went out to a celebration party at the top of the park, and I was gonna watch the first woman president get elected. <laughs> and I watched the poll results roll in. And it was, I mean, we don't need to relive it. Everybody it was there. We know what happened. But when I left that night, I thought about, my God, how disengaged I had become in the last eight years. How politically active and radical I used to be in the Bush, Bush years and how much I had disengaged and how much work there is to be done. And it started this chain, all of that, that week. It started this chain of me just having to look at myself and say, sister, you have to show up. You gotta let go of these little bits of immaturity that you have that say, Ah, somebody else is going to take care of it. Oh, my family sucks, so I can ignore that. Oh, my partner hurt me, so I can close off to relationships. And no. Actually, you just have to show up. You just have to know what the work is, and you have to show up, and you have to do it. And I've held myself really accountable, and it's fucking hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And then on a cold, early November morning this year, I got on an airplane to travel west. This time to my hometown that I hadn't been in in nine years, to go and visit friends that I had run away from all those years ago because I thought they were the reason that my life was a shit show. 
and I was going to go to a conference full of philanthropists. And I had sort of a bad attitude about it, right? A conference, my God, how boring is a conference, right? And I was nervous. I was nervous to see those friends. I thought, have I, have I changed? Have I changed too much? Is my Midwestern accent too thick now for my Californian friends? Like on Facebook, I was, I was really gay, and then I was kind of not gay for that long because I had this weird period where I had some kids, and then, and then like, are, is she gay? What's going on with her? Is she gay again? <laughs> Who knows? One may never know. Uh, and I got off the plane, and I was so nervous. And my friend Fritzo, his name's Fritzo, of course, right? He's from California. He has all these like crystals and shit hanging from his rearview mirror. He picked me up and he was like, girl, we're going to the coast. And he took me on this long drive up and down the northern California coast and we got out and we played with kelp. We played whip wars with big strips of kelp. And we played in the shore and we talked about whether some people are actually aliens <laughs> and like what Saturn return means. And I spent the next three days with these old friends that had seen me in my darkest times. They saw why, why I ran away. But I showed up, I showed up for them. And all they could say is, my God, I'm really, I'm really, really proud of you. I can see how hard you've worked. I can see why you isolated yourself into this frozen little town. <laughs> and then I went to that conference and I was in a room full of hundreds of philanthropists doing the work of the world, to solve all of the world's problems. And people were looking to me as though I knew something, and that felt really good. And then I got to go to a drag show, which, like, there are no drag shows like drag shows in California, and it was amazing. And then I was waiting for another plane to head back home. And this time, my stepfather called me, and he said, you know what I did today, kiddo? And I said, no, what'd you do today? He said, I mowed my lawn. He said, my arm's working enough now that I used my right hand to hold down the throttle on my lawnmower, and I, with my own two feet, I mowed my lawn. He said, I hadn't mowed my lawn in a year. I said, good. We've all made a lot of progress, haven't we? In the next story, Matt Soderquist tells of a week of search and rescue when a new friend goes missing on a lake. So it was a Thursday at the beginning of April, and the ice had just melted off the lake. I heard that the Coast Guard was out on the water looking for a missing kayaker, and my heart sank. I'd run into Larry earlier in the day. He was waiting in line at the sporting goods counter and he had full camouflage gear on. He couldn't get his fishing license fast enough. He was super pumped to be back out on the water. I met Larry six months prior at a veteran's coffee hour. He stuck out less because he was 27 years old and more because the average age at the coffee hour was about 75. But he looked how I used to feel in large crowds. Empty, hollow, lonely. I introduced myself and I told him about Team Red, White, and Blue, 
a veteran nonprofit I volunteered for whose mission was to enrich the lives of America's veterans by connecting them to the community through physical and social activities. He seemed a little hesitant. He said he didn't run all that much. So I did the next logical thing, and I had one of our female volunteers go and introduce herself. <laughs> and I had her invite him out to our weekly run later on that evening. And Larry came. And he brought his service dog, Fancy. And he kept coming, week after week. Sometimes it would be just Larry and I. He knew I was a social worker. And he asked me what I thought about those parents whose kids I had to remove. I told him that I'd hate for anyone to judge me based on my worst day. And that oftentimes when I removed those kids, it was often the parents' worst day. He let his guard down a little bit. He started talking about himself. He told me about being in foster care since he could remember about being in foster homes that you didn't want to be in. He talked about joining the army and what it was like being deployed to Iraq in a bomb ordnance disposal unit. I talked about my experiences in Team Red, White, and Blue and how I joined after my stepbrother, Marine veteran, and took his own life. We talked about how joining the team, putting on the uniform, pounding the pavement had given both of us purpose and meaning after so many losses. So Larry was running more and more, and I talked him into registering for his 5K trail run. First weekend in November, we line up at the start. It was just below freezing, and about a quarter of a mile in, Larry says, well, this isn't too bad. What do you think? We about like halfway done? <laughs> like we hadn't even hit the big hills yet. I said, don't worry, Larry, we got this. But the hills were brutal. And near the end, we came to the section, and a volunteer was there. And the volunteer said, don't worry, guys. It's all downhill from here. And when we got to the bottom of the hill, the trail went right back up. <laughs> and as we crossed the finish line on that first 5K, Larry turned to me, and he said, I am going to go find that volunteer and have some words with him. But in the winter, Larry joined our volleyball team, and he was terrible. <laughs> Most of the time, he would move out of the way when the ball came near him. Like, we, we would give him pointers and tips, but all he would really do is just punch the ball. <laughs> and ironically, occasionally, he would score points because the other team, you know, received the ball back unsuspectingly. But he was like a little brother, a little brother who you couldn't just help but laugh at, no matter what they did. He was more than a friend, more like family. When I heard about the Coast Guard search, I ran to my car. I headed down to the boat launch, and the only vehicle in the parking lot was his. The state police said a witness had seen him fishing in his kayak about 100 yards off the boat launch. Ten minutes later, she saw the kayak, but no Larry. And after several hours, they'd retrieved his kayak and all his fishing gear, 
but there was no sign of Larry. And a rescue turned into a recovery. The next morning, the dive teams started their search. We combed four miles of the beach for any sign or clue. When I'd see a clump of leaves in the shallow water, my heart would start to race, thinking that it was Larry in his camouflage rain gear. I kept making up scenarios in my mind, anything other than he was dead, like maybe he tipped his kayak and made it to shore and broke into a cabin to get warm, and he was just going to emerge from one of these homes along the lake shore and tell us he was safe. The cops would forgive him because he was in some kind of life-threatening situation on the verge of hypothermia. We'd all laugh about it and go out to lunch, talk about how stupid it was for him to go out kayaking on a day with 30-mile-an-hour winds and freezing water temperatures. On Saturday, they brought in the side-scanning sonar and an underwater rover. They were finding pop cans and bottles at the bottom of the lake. And one of the divers said that he came face-to-face -face with a six-foot-long lake sturgeon. But no Larry. I kept replaying our chance encounter hours before he went missing. Why had I ran into him after not talking to him for several weeks? Should I have talked him into not going fishing? I felt guilty. I was angry. And Larry's estranged family had gathered on the beach. Some of them hadn't seen him in years. They joked that Larry had always said if he went missing, they would have a hard time finding him. And one of them asked his mom if they could have his TV. On Sunday, our team gathered at Camp Grayling for this annual event called Run as One. It's a national running event held in honor of a Marine veteran who had taken his own life. We planned the event for months, and Larry's absence weighed on me. But many of us wore these desert shimogs in his memory. He had always had one on after having been deployed to the desert. And on Monday, I returned to work, and the newspaper had a picture of Larry and I from that race we had done a few months back. But I still felt empty, hollow, angry. After work for the rest of the week, I'd drive down to the boat launch for the update. Always the same, always nothing. On Thursday, a week after he went missing, they brought in a cadaver dog. A tow truck hauled away his Jeep, and the search was suspended. A month later, his body surfaced. A warm day at the beginning of May, a fisherman spotted him on the shore two miles north of the original search area. He still had on his camouflage rain gear. And his family asked if I would speak at his funeral. They said they'd never seen him get so close to people since returning from Iraq. I told stories about how terrible he was at volleyball. <laughs> I talked about how he made me laugh every time I saw him. 
And as I was up there looking at this packed room full of family and friends, some of whom hadn't seen him in years, I realized what a gift, what a blessing it had been, not just to have seen him on the last day he was with us, but to have known him at all. Thank you. Next, Jen Cameron's week takes place in a Texas church camp in the early 1990s. So it's, uh, it's start date, June 1989. I've just seen images of Tiananmen Square on TV. I just learned that Ben Johnson was accused of doping. I just, you know, had been learning that there was this movie called The Last Temptation of Christ in, uh, in the theaters that I was uh, not at all uh, to see. That would have been a sin. And, uh, and we, I, I, um, I'm boarding a bus. This is what I'm doing on June 11th. I'm boarding a bus with 60 or 70 of my closest friends from the First Baptist Church uh, youth group in uh, Brenham, Texas located equidistant from Houston and Austin, but really not close enough to either, if you ask me. Um, but Brenham was my home until I turned 18, and First Baptist uh, Church Youth Group was my spiritual home um, for a time. And I was 13, and I was, I was just out of seventh grade, and uh, we were boarding this bus. Uh, we also had uh, some lovely chaperones and adult counselors, and, and, and you see, at the First Baptist Church, my grandfather had been a deacon there for 50 years, and my grandmother had sung in the choir for 60, and uh, my parents had met and married in that youth group. I mean, they didn't marry in the youth group, but they got married <laughs> later. It wasn't like that church, but we'll talk about those. <laughs> they still waited till like 20, you know? Um, but the previous year, I had gone to my first church camp at the Highland Lakes. It's in Austin. It's just outside of town. It's verdant. You're overlooking a lake. There's great canoeing. There's lots of fun. There's archery. But this year, we were going to go somewhere different. We were going to go to a new church camp, and it was um, my uh, Daryl. Daryl was our, my youth minister. Um, he was no longer. He'd kind of like departed unexpectedly, kind of quickly, and we didn't really know what had happened, but he was gonna be an activities director at this camp, and he encouraged uh, Brother Dwayne, Pastor Dwayne, um, he encouraged him to let us go to this camp. Um, he said that it would really be good for our spiritual growth, and, and we had kind of been doing this thing on, on Sunday nights called Prayer Band, and uh, it was a time that um, was really meaningful to me. I mean, it was from my sixth grade year, and every Sunday I would get together with my friends and we would uh, share our joys, we would share our concerns, and uh, then we'd pray. And then we'd sing, and the singing was so wonderful, and I was just like, I was, the songs, I could just, my troubles fell away, and I got lost um, in this voice. I got lost in this oneness with, the divine creator, right? Um, at that time, the Lord God, lots of he pronouns. And, um, and so Daryl um, 
uh, said we should go to this other church. And so we didn't go uh, church camp. And so we, this year we headed north. And we headed north west. And we headed very close to this town um, called Waco. And this was about three years before Waco would become known for religious zealots, um, you know, dying in a, a fiery death for, um, for their beliefs and for following a, a very charismatic uh, leader um, who led them through all kinds of ways uh, to, to this place. And so we are on our way to Aquila, Texas, and um, I see a Texan friend in the back, and it's like outside of Hillsboro, like, you know, it's like way south of Dallas, Gary. And it's, um, it's just ugly and scrubby, and there's like the Brazos River runs really muddy brown. And so this is, I'm like, why are we here? And there's like a lot more bugs, and, and we pull down this dusty road, and I mean, even the architecture was kind of like lamer. It was just like... <laughs> Like this ugly, like brick ranch style, you know, and you've got all these bunk houses, and then you've got places where your church can gather. But, I mean, we're rolling up like big pimpin style in a in a in a charter bus. We were the largest group to arrive at this Baptist encampment, and we pull into the drive, and uh, we see all of these buses and vans. But I'm seeing names on the vans that I don't recognize. I'm seeing stuff like the Christ Disciples of you know, Hillsborough and the, the Pentecostal Church of Cleburne and um, the Heiko, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to make the third one up, but you know, you know what I mean. Like they're <laughs> the Hala for Heiko, but that's something else. So we pull into this uh, parking lot and, um, and there are no Baptist fans. So um, here's the cool deal. My mom was a chaperone with me, and um, I actually have a pretty nice document uh, from this week that I've been able to refer to, because what happened next was um, just an emotional ride and an really a, a loss of my innocence, I suppose. Um, so I was raised Southern Baptist, which is a religious doctrine that um, really frowns upon inquiry, questioning, doubting, um, that's the devil at work. Um, and we enjoyed singing, but we still couldn't dance. So if you can like understand the limits of getting lost and then not moving your body too much, Elvis. <laughs> so little did I know that, I mean, this week was really going to impact me, and it's um, a lot to dredge up. And I mean, we're, this is a place where there are more stop signs than, there are more churches than stop signs, right? Like, this is the part of the world. I'm beating that. Um, we get our t-shirts. We register. And our t-shirts are emblazoned with uh, Ephesians 6.12. Wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in heavenly places, we're going to battle for Jesus Christ. And I just thought I was going to church camp. Um, <laughs> I'm a lover, not a fighter. 
There is a difference between the church of love and the church of legality. I would know that much later in life. But I was 13. And so, you know, I, I could kind of tell that our counselors were uneasy and I was like, what is Pentecostal? What is, you know, what is all of this? And uh, we go into, we, we, you know, get dinner. It was, I'm sure, delicious camp food, upside down <laughs> pineapple cake. And um, we saw Daryl, and we were like, hey, man, there aren't any Baptist churches here. And he was like, oh, it's cool, it's cool. Brother Dwayne knows. He wants you to be here. And we went into this evening service. It started uh, right after dinner, and it ran until after midnight. And we weren't allowed to leave the pavilion. The sermon was fire and brimstone. And... I'd never heard of the book of Revelations, but I became very well acquainted with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the burning lakes of fire, and how if I weren't hot, hot, hot for Jesus, I was going to burn in hell. So, okay. Oh, good. We're getting to the singing. We're getting to the singing part. I, this is, you know... Our God is an awesome God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and like grooving, grooving. And I'm standing next to my friend Sarah, and she's freaking out because there is a young man next to her who is like, and it was not Spanish or German or French, but he was doing this thing and like you like you could kind of tell that like his soul wasn't in his like body necessarily like he was I don't know it was weird I thought he was possessed it scared the shit out of me <laughs> and so we went back and you know met with our group after that sermon and uh, we were like WTF that didn't exist then but we were like <laughs> because that would have been Ephesians 429 don't use any cuss words I think is the paraphrase of that so you know, we go back, we check in with our counselors, we're terrified, they're like, we don't know how to advise you, we're gonna just hold the space and come to us if you need anything, and, and the next morning, <laughs> after scrambled eggs, we, um, my mom and Anne, the other counselor, one of the other women, uh, went to make a phone call at the payphone to call our home church to talk to Pastor Duane. Uh, to see if someone would come out because we were asking a lot of questions and we were scared, to be honest. Um, and we were seeing things that we'd never seen before. And he didn't, he wasn't really very responsive. And, you know, but while she was on this phone call, there was a circle of women from some of the other churches. They didn't know him and they were like next to her, like just feet away and just like praying and like lifting their hands to the Lord and like, making sure that they would be distracted from this phone call. Um, they go about their merry way. It's not merry, and I have jokes in here, but they go about their day, and they come across a cabin where a young woman, where they're hearing these cries, and um, it's surrounded by people, and there's this young woman 
And like, as they walk up, you know, my mom writes, she was like, I didn't want to do this, but my heart and feet led me there. And she ends up in this cabin with this young woman who is, this is going to be a little graphic, but she's like, you know, bleeding from the nose and vomiting blood and convulsing and going in and out of consciousness. And there are probably eight men and one woman in there. And all of the men are laying hands on her and speaking in tongues. And the woman is taking notes and recording heartbeats and respirations. And like, actually, they look and she's translating some of this otherly language. And the camp pastor comes in and he tells this child, who we later find out um, is ill, but she's choosing not to get treatment. She's traveling around with the Kentucky Praise Band that is accompanying us all week. Uh, and um, he lays his hands on her and he commands demons out of her. She does end up leaving in an ambulance much later, but she, she may have died and she may have come back to life. I mean, she was in bad shape and they really were uh, focused on uh, the demon part of her illness. So, here ends the second day. On the third day, they finally got a response. And like my mom, they're, they're like, the counselors are going back to the, the, the payphone and they're like, you guys really need to check on this. We can't explain this. Like, to the, we don't know what to do. Um, and so they finally send one of our deacons who is sort of the, I mean, he's kind of a chucklehead to be honest. Bless, God rest your soul, Brother Fairley. But he drove two and a half hours, Brother Fairley. He um, drove two and a half hours, came, scoped out the campus from his car, scoped out the camp, um, rolled his window down and was like, yeah, looks okay to me. Y'all good. Praise God. You know, two and a half hours back to Brenham. Um, so, you know, it's getting real, it's getting real. And, and my mom kind of has a tip off from the counselors meeting that this, the Wednesday night's gonna be a big night. Um, and so we, we get into the worship service uh, that evening again, not able to leave. And um, we start up with, you know, we we're reminded of all the lake of fire just to, you know, hit all the high points of fear um, uh, from the scriptures. And then we, uh, we started to chant and we sang one song. And I, um, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And it just builds into this fervor, into this crescendo, into this fever. And you can like feel heat coming off of the people and you can just kind of feel this like frenzy. And young people start like running to the front of the pavilion. There are like 400 young people and we're singing this. We've been singing this song for an hour. And they start to sway and young people start to like flail on the ground and, and people are laying hands on each other and casting out demons because we have demons in us, right? Like because we have devils, because we innocents who have come here to learn how to walk a good walk and live a good life and praise the Lord like good little Baptists, well, we're actually, any seed of doubt in us is the devil working. And that's the message 
uh, that we were to leave home with. Um, but we were also to leave home with this message of being in, in battle uh, with our church. Because if you weren't clapping your hands, if you weren't speaking in tongues, if you weren't hot, red hot for Jesus, something was wrong with you and you were going to burn in hell. So, when the night reached its fever pitch, young people were tearing out cassette tapes and tearing up books and somebody asked me, they said, you know, you were reading that V.C. Andrews book. It was seventh grade, it was hot. It was salacious. And they were like, Jen, go get your book. Go burn your book. Go get your book. And I was like, I'm not done with it yet. I'm not, I don't know how it ends. I'm not done with it yet. And, you know, whatever. It was still salacious. I don't remember the ending at all, but... My ending here is, you know, this is, this w was a, is a litmus test for my life, my, my spiritual life since that, that point in time. And um, I, to scare the shit out of young innocents, to manipulate them into some sort of practice that is to lead them to be better citizens, um, I, I like to pay attention to when I'm being manipulated and scared. And I know that, you know, from this experience that we can face down this fear with love and be scared as shit and have a lot of stuff you're still working out at 41 when you're writing this story and thinking, oh my God, how did I live through that? And how do I still kind of believe in this divine goodness in all of us? And um, I don't know. Love's greater than fear, I guess. Thanks. <laughs>
Um, I will say that we, after owning it for three years, I sold it for 30% more than I paid for it, though. Yeah. Woo! Hudson Power. So I was on Craigslist looking for rentals because I wanted a break from renovating, and my dad sure as heck did. While looking for rentals, I kept seeing listings for mobile homes for sale, and I hadn't even considered them before, but I was fascinated by tiny homes, and I'm a striving minimalist, so I figured I would look into it. Well, I ended up finding one in a small park that had a private beach. The lot rent was less than my car payment, and a mobile home was in such disrepair that I negotiated it down to $7,000. My dad was not happy with my choice, <laughs> of course, but he begrudgingly got on board when I explained that by owning a home outright, I would be able to knock out the rest of my debt and then pass it on to my son so he would have a place to live after high school while he was hopefully attending college. So I started another round of renovation bonding with my dad. <laughs> we gutted it down to the studs, moved all the walls but one, and replaced pretty much everything. Over the summer, we built the biggest 10 by 10 shed in the neighborhood. <laughs> the park rules said the base couldn't be more than 10 by 10, but they did not state how tall it could be. <laughs> so we built a small barn. It's about 13 feet high, uh, which makes for a nice loft area and gives me about 180 square feet of storage. So since the, farm, the barn was finally done and usable in September, and with my spirit of being a finisher, and with rent on my two storage units about to be due, it was time to cross another thing off the finish list and empty the storage units. After looking at the 10-day forecast, I noted that there was going to be a week without rain, and I decided now was the time. It also happened to be that week when it was over 90 degrees for six days. Yeah, we remember that. So instead of going to the beach, I thought, hey, it would be a lot of fun to be inside large metal boxes for the whole weekend. <laughs> so Friday, I picked up the U-Haul and started loading it. I was hoping to feel some elation at the fact I was actually finishing something. However, it totally sucked. Being inside a storage unit, and inside a truck in 90 degree heat is not the best idea I've ever had. The kids were awesome. They didn't complain about the task at hand, although my 15 year old son repeatedly scolded me for having too much wood and told me I needed to stop collecting it, <laughs> staging an intervention. Although I agree with him to a certain point, there wasn't much that could be done about it now, it had to be removed. So we filled the 17 foot haul U-Haul, seven feet, 17 feet long U-Haul, two times that day, unloading the first load and saving the second load until Saturday morning. After unloading and getting the truck back in time, I asked if, we, if they would be willing to let us have it for just a few more hours, to which they kindly agreed. So we filled it one more time, got home, unloaded it just in time to race the truck back, and then race back to the back home so my son could shower and then get him back to town for two hours of driver's training in a, 
in the car, in the actual car. <laughs> Sorry, Traverse City. Then I raced back home, and the full magnitude of what we had just done hit me. You see, we downsized from an 1,800-square-foot home to an 850-square-foot mobile home and a two-car workshop down to a 10-by-10 shed. The storage units totaled 275 square feet, and the shed was only 180 square feet. See where I'm going with this? <laughs> Which was already half full with tools and wood from the home renovation. So I pulled up to my tiny yard that was now covered with two storage units full of stuff. It was like when you decide to clean out your closet and your whole bedroom becomes a giant mess and you're in that it gets worse before it gets better stage. <laughs> Except this wasn't a room hidden inside my house. This was my yard. The park manager was not gonna be happy about this. I wasn't happy about this either. I spent an hour trying to rearrange stuff and, it, and get it tarped over for the night because I had to take a shower, go get my son, bring him back home, and then go to work. I was glad the days were shorter, so at least darkness would fall soon. <laughs> Cover up my yard. And I, just, and I just prayed that the neighborhood skunk didn't think that these forts were a nice place to call home. <laughs> Sunday, we went to church to pray for a miracle. Later that day, a friend who lives in Empire, which is about 30 minutes from my place, said I could move all my wood and workshop stuff out to his pole barn, and that was a big miracle that I really needed. I still had a couple of van loads at the storage unit. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so we cleaned them out and added them to the pile, because what difference does it make now? <laughs> Oddly enough, everyone that walked by with their beach floaties and picnic baskets wouldn't even make eye contact with me. I was like, great, now I'm the neighborhood crazy lady. <laughs> I wanted to put a sign up in my yard that said, this is what, maybe I'll need this someday, and I will deal with this later, looks like all gathered in one place. <laughs> what obstacles are you trying to overcome? <laughs> I spent time Sunday moving whatever wouldn't be stored in Empire or the shed into the house. I made some progress, but nobody but me would notice. Monday morning came the call I was dreading, but I didn't let, let it go to voicemail, and I answered the park manager's call. Heather, she said, what is going on? I got complaints about your yard, and I was out of town, and I drove by today, and I was like, what the heck is this? I was like, yeah, um, I'm sorry about this. I had to empty my storage units, but I have to sort through the stuff and get rid of it, and I can't do that when it was shoved into the storage unit, um, and it doesn't all fit in the house in the shed, and so I have to, you know, I'm working on it. <laughs> and I, I left out the part about getting all fired up after camp and my quest to become a finisher, and um, <laughs> instead I just continued. Uh, 
I'm, I am embarrassed by the mess and I'm working really hard to get it done. And she just took a deep breath and said, okay, but this has to be done right away. And I don't mean like next week, I mean as soon as possible. And I was like, yes, I know. I don't want this to take any longer than it needs to either. And I'll be getting it as cleaned up as quick as I can. And I had to be to work in two hours. So I did the best that I could that day and hoped the next day would show more progress. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I was on my game. Taking two trips a day out to Empire with woodworking and workshop things, and the piles in the yard were getting smaller and smaller. I was juggling that with working and running the kids around, and I guess the progress, progress wasn't as noticeable to the park manager, however, because on Friday morning, she texts me to say that if it wasn't cleaned up by Sunday, she was giving me a 30-day eviction notice. My heart sank. I responded back that I had been making progress every day and I was doing it as quickly as I could. I also stated that I felt eviction was an overreaction and I should have the right to move in. And she said, I've never seen anyone move in by dumping it into the yard. <laughs> to which I responded, that's likely because most people aren't downsizing by half. I understand where she was coming from, but I was still furious that she was threatening my children's stability and all the things I had been busting my ass for for over a year. Up to that moment, I felt like I was killing it. It felt great to get through all this stuff and move toward having less. I wanted to send her a letter saying, can't you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to teach my kids about living with less so that you can enjoy each other's company and experience new things and not have to spend all of your time managing stuff and to also be debt free. I took a neglected home and transformed it into a space that I and my kids can be proud of. A home that I want to pass to my autistic son so he doesn't have to worry about debt and he can be on his own. I'm a single mom working multiple jobs, studying to be a realtor, trying to start a nonprofit, and renovating whenever I find the time. And when I'm done with this place, And when I'm done with this place, it will be one of the nicest homes here. But it's going to take time. Doesn't she understand all that? Doesn't she know that I don't do things the way most people do them? But I didn't send her the letter because I had too much to do to be writing letters to people that don't understand me anyway. <laughs> I took two more loads to Empire and went to work at 3. At 4.30, I got a phone call from the school. They said my daughter's teacher, along with a few other teachers, had to be downsized and so she would be getting a new teacher on Monday. The students left school that day not knowing that they wouldn't be seeing their teacher again on Monday. I was devastated for my daughter because she really loved her teacher and this was her second year, their second year together. Ten, ten minutes later, I got another call from my ex-husband. I thought he was calling to discuss the teacher. He wasn't. He was calling to tell me he was taking a job in Maryland. So he would be moving in a few weeks, which meant instead of having the kids 50-50, I would now have them full time. It was at that moment that I realized I needed to stop answering my phone. <laughs> my super awesome manager, Andrew, 
said to me once, he said to me about my life, he says, in your life, you don't have problems, you have adventures. <laughs> that day I held on to those words and thought, all right, let's do this. So here we are three months later, my son has his driving permit. My daughter has settled into her new classroom and she thinks her teacher is a little strict, but I think that's probably exactly what she needs. <laughs> I've had the kids full time for almost two months and we are managing just fine. Their dad has come back three times and he'll be back at Christmas. I passed my realtor's exam this month. <laughs> and my yard, well, I didn't finish it on Sunday. I finished it on Saturday because I said I would! Next, Polly Hurlburt's cross-country bike tour takes a turn during the week he's in the southwestern part of the United States. So, uh, just a little over two years ago, I decided to go on an adventure, and I decided to do a bike tour. A bike tour is where you take your bicycle, and you load your life onto it, and you travel. So I had uh, four bags, a tent, and I flew to Vancouver, and decided I was going to ride my bicycle down the west coast to Tijuana, Mexico. <laughs> and I did just that, and it was amazing. Um, it was an adventure of a lifetime, so much so that I didn't want to stop. I said, fuck it, I'm going to ride across the country now to the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that I wanted that I hadn't quite gotten yet was uh, the, the true challenge of it. Don't get me wrong, it's not easy cycling the Pacific Northwest, but I think there was just so much beauty and amazing things happening right from another that it just it hadn't been the the full-on hard challenge that I thought it might be. And I figured maybe that the desert might give me that challenge. And so I headed east from San Diego, and for the first week or so, I think it was so new and exciting, different scenery. I took my clothes off and rode naked for a mile and <laughs> kept myself entertained that way. <laughs> Met a coyote for the first time. And then I left Tucson, and then that's when the challenge truly began. I developed a cold and was cycling through that, and so that, that started that day there and leaving Tucson, and I didn't get a whole lot of riding in, especially after a couple of flat tires consecutively, deserts full of these little bastard thorns. So I stopped early and uh, after taking breaks and saw this field behind a Walmart that looked inviting enough to sleep in, and was walking my bicycle through there, and I was doing a good job of dodging cactus, but the bike tire kicked up a ball of cacti that was completely covered in needles, and it just sticks to the side of my leg. And the thing about a ball of cactus is you can't grab it <laughs> because it's completely <laughs> covered in needles. But luckily, I was prepared enough to bring a set of pliers and figured out a brand new use for those. <laughs> then I uh, get over it, and I set up my tent, and I crawl in. And I'm going to rewind to before I left. I had never cycled that long of distance ever before. 
But my buddy Nate had, and he was talking to me, and he looks me right in the eye, and he says, Polly, chamois butter. <laughs> I'm like, all right, word. So in Washington, I picked up a, a tube. For those of you who don't know, it's basically a lube for your taint. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happen on a bicycle, and one of them is that your bits and pieces rub. <laughs> but the whole West Coast, no worries. I didn't even use it. And I think it might have been something about this dry desert air for about a week. <laughs> I'm laying in a tent behind the Walmart and on my side, and I just give it a little itch. <laughs> and holy shit, I set off a fucking bomb of itch <laughs> that I didn't know how to handle. Because you can't keep itching it. So I'm laying there in my tent, just firmly pushing against my taint, wondering what is happening. And finally, I remember Nate saying, shammy butter. And it was in my bag and my bike, and I dove out of my tent and just And it was immediately, it was immediately relieved. It still took a few days of riding where I would slide forward on my saddle and just push the nose against the bike seat, but. <laughs> So I wake up from that awful night, start riding. Can't get any worse than that, right? And I start riding, and then all of a sudden, I, I feel my bike turn, and my front rack just fell off. I had, I had hit a post back in San Francisco because I was looking at my phone like an idiot. But I, uh, about 1,000 miles later, this screw finally gave out at the perfect timing. And uh, the rack just fell off. So I, I've run into weird situations before, and I'm, I'm a guyvered my way out of it. And I took an old tube and cut it, made it into a rope, and tied it to the back rack. I'm like, all right, whatever, no big deal. Then I'm riding, and uh, actually, I started that sentence, but then realized nothing else eventful happened that day. <laughs> Sorry, this is the, <laughs> this is the next day. I looked at the forecast and knew that there was a storm coming. So I was going to get a good early start and make it to this town. And I had, I had cam mostly camped and crashed with friends, but I, I knew that there was going to be some moments where I might have to get a motel if there was some weather. And this was definitely going to be one of those storms. So I wake up early to pack up camp and get on my way. And uh, as, I op as I start to unzip the tent, I notice it's hard and crusty. And the tent is frozen. My water bottles are frozen. I get out. <coughs> my bike is completely covered in frost. My hands immediately go numb. And I, I can't pack up my tent like this. Uh, my fingers don't work so well in the cold. So I, I dive back into my sleeping bag of cocooned warmth and wait for the sun to get a little bit higher. So that, that's one delay right there. And then uh, that day, as I'm writing Google Maps, which had been so wonderful to me this whole trip. Just decided to just flip me off that day. <laughs> saying, fuck you, here's a road that doesn't exist. <laughs> now you have to turn around and go back to a main road. And then I'm gonna take you to another road later in the day that doesn't exist. 
So once again, I'm, I'm behind schedule and another flat tire to that day as I'm just racing as hard as I can, watching this dark sky getting closer to me. And eventually it catches up to me right as it goes nightfall and the winds pick up to probably about 40 knots with snow, sleet, mix, uh, temperature drops. I can't even walk the bike. I, if I look in the direction of the wind, it's, it, it's blinding. So I throw the bike down, start jumping up and down like a lunatic with my thumb in the air. And I, uh, five minutes or so, but I see this truck crossing the median. He pulls over. We don't say a word to each other. We just throw the bike in the back of the truck, grabbing the bags and everything. We hop in this wonderfully warm, comfortable cab. And I look at him, I'm just like, you just saved my fucking life. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I could tell this whole story, well, of the bike tour, just on the kindness of strangers. But that is just one of the many examples of uh, how when you really need help, people are there. So that got me through that moment, and I'm very thankful for Curly. He's the man. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That is his name. <laughs> so he, he gives me a ride. I have a night in my hotel. All right. Another day. It's going to get better. And this day, I'm leaving El Paso, Texas. And I start heading east. And I look at Google Maps, and I, I'm a little more suspicious these days. <laughs> But you know what, uh, I'm not uh, trying to outrun a storm, I'm just, I'm gonna make my way to Austin however long it takes me. And uh, this road looks a little suspicious, but I'm like, oh, maybe it'll be a fun adventure, so I'm just gonna do it. And sure enough, it, was, it looked like a road, like Fury Road out of Mad Max. <laughs> it's all dirt, sand, and I'm fishtailing, and I'm trying to find the best line, and falling every once in a while, but it's all good, it's fun. And I, I look like I'm in the middle of a Breaking Bad scene after a few hours. Just in the middle, of, like I could have easily cooked meth and no one would have known. <laughs> and eventually, I, I see a car for the first time in hours, and it's a police car. And he's driving on the service road that I'm crossing. And I give him a little two-finger wave. Hey, man, I'm having a time. <laughs> and he gives me a two-finger, get the fuck over here. And he's, what are you doing out here? <laughs> Riding my bike. <laughs> you know this is Fort Bliss, right? It's a military base. I pull out my phone, I'm like, hey man, I'm on the blue line. <laughs> I didn't see a single sign. It's, it's fucking Google Maps, man. You call them. So he's like, well, uh, I believe you, but you gotta get out of here. <laughs> you gotta turn around. I'm like, oh. That would, that would waste a whole day for me. It would be nightfall by the time I got back to El Paso, and then I was right back where I started. So I, uh, you know, I'm trying to ask him, and can I, is there any way? You know, I'm, not, I'm not doing anything, you know? <laughs> and he, he says, you know, I can't, I can't have you out here, man. Uh, someone died out here. And I was like, well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't die. I'd be fine. <laughs> well, the other option, he says, is to put your bike in the truck and I can take you back to the station and write you up for trespassing. And I was like, whoa, man, I'm going to do 
whatever you tell me it is to do, but I'm just seeing if there's any option. I, um, please, please, just, uh, let's just talk about it. He's like, well, where are you going? Well, Austin's my next city. Austin? <laughs> he said, well, I mean, I, I started in Vancouver. <laughs> Vancouver, Washington? No, Canada. I'll never forget this. Are you like one of those guys on TV or something? <laughs> yeah, man, there's a fucking drone right there. You're gonna be on TV's, uh, you're going viral if you're a dick to me. Uh, but he, had, uh, long story short, we talked for a bit after that and he was actually a genuinely nice guy and he, he was so uh, interested and then impressed and uh, he said, well, do you have water? Five liters, you have enough battery and a solar panel. He's like, all right, man. If you keep going that way, then you can take the next service road south and then you'll get back to the main road a little bit quicker, but fucking A. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I survived that one. And then now I'm in the belly of the beast of West Texas, which, like, three people had warned me as I left El Paso, you know there's, like, nothing out there, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I got it. And, uh, yeah, so I had some lonely stretches out there, but I was doing it. And I didn't see people for a long time and didn't see bathrooms for a long time either, <laughs> which brings me to the next challenge. Uh, <laughs> but I, I learned something that day. And I'm riding and I'm, I get really constipated and I'm uncomfortable and I, oh, man, there's no bathroom anywhere near in sight. And I was like, oh, I can't do this, I gotta go. So I, I see the first tree and I, there's, it's like a skeleton tree, but there's no one out here anyway, who cares? So I go back there and nothing happens. And so I think to myself, well, I do have a jet boil stove and I, oh, you know, I got a solution. So I pull over on the side of the road of West Texas, pull out my jet boil stove and my French press coffee mug <laughs> and I make a pot of coffee and I roll a cigarette, and <laughs> cigarette and bike touring is another story. Don't, yeah, whatever. Um, and I, about halfway through the cigarette and a few sips of coffee deep, there it is. <laughs> and I'm immediately, I always imagine this, you know, Google Earth where they take the camera and they like zoom it out. I always imagine just that, that moment as I'm sitting there drinking coffee, smoking a cigarette, and eventually pooping behind this tree, that there's this camp Google Earth camera on me. Like, this is what's happening right now in West fucking Texas. <laughs> so I got through the poop. <laughs> and then it wasn't uh, another day or two later, and these flats that I've mentioned a couple times just keep happening, and I noticed on my back tire that the, the tread was wearing down and it, the, it started peeling and these thorns weren't stopping and eventually I'm down to my last tube and I, I put it in I'm like all right bro 300 miles to Austin you got to hang in there and five miles down the road my front tube pops I'm like man you were the good one I pull it off, and there is a cartoonish sized thorn sticking out of it. And by this point, I think so much had happened that I was like, <laughs> whatever. 
it's going to work. I, it'll probably work out. And uh, hitchhiking worked out before, so I stick my thumb out. And I think very calmly, and I'll just wait and tell them picks me up. If they don't, I'll just sleep right there and try again in the morning. But within 10 minutes or so, a uh, very nice couple. Uh, the guy had done a bike tour himself before. They told me later that she just looked at him and said, you, you're going to pick him up, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's camaraderie of the road. Uh, but they picked me up, and they were going the rest of the way to Austin. And I was almost stubborn in thinking I don't want to miss this part of the, you know, I, I won't be able to say I rode the across the country the whole way. But I looked at these two, and they just seemed so interesting and so nice and genuine. So, you know, I'm out here for the experience, and these two seem like a great experience. And they were. They, we had a wonderful 300-mile drive to Austin. And then I arrived in Austin, the end of the desert, and I had a cousin there, uh, two very good friends. I ended up spending um, over a week there and just had a great celebration of, of getting through the desert. And, um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I made it. I made it out. And, and, you know, one of the things about the bike tour that I really learned how much I loved about it was the amount of time that I had riding a bike by myself to look back on these experiences and, and reflect on them. And uh, spending some time reflecting on this moment and, and all the moments is that I I didn't know exactly what I was going to get out of it. I had never done anything quite like it before. But one thing that I did know is that challenge means growth. And I learned that a couple years before the bike tour, when I had the greatest challenge that I had ever had in my life, is when my wife, Kelly, was killed riding her bicycle. And Kelly was, not to be cliche, but it's it's very simple, was the best thing that had ever happened to me. And I had grown more in the time that I had with her than I ever had before. And that's why I seek out things like this, is because of the growth that I know comes from them. And one of the challenges that I'd already overcome was, uh, was to be how to be happy, as it's something that we talked about. And it was as clear as just continuing to do the things that had always made me happy and things that I knew would. And one of those was adventure and travel. And that's why it was easy to decide to go on something like the bike tour. And a lyric from a song that always kind of resonated with me through that time was a Ryan Mont Blue song where he said, sadness and pleasure so close together I can't seem to tell the difference. Better take it all, I guess. And even though I was, I had figured out this uh, challenge of how to maintain my happiness, uh, one, one thing that was still challenging me up until the desert was uh, loneliness. And that was something I still was dealing with. And that's what the desert became to me. Because even though the itchy taint and the <laughs> riding through Fort Bliss was interestingly challenging, it was really the 
uh, the three weeks in the desert where I hardly had any um, interaction with people and it was it was just me, the elements, and my, my mind out there. And by putting myself in the most lonely position uh, that I could have, with every stroke of my bicycle, I became more comfortable with it. And I gained confidence from it. Because every day since then, I can look back on the most lonely part of my life, time in my life, and know that I can get through it. And I can look back on it and, and smile and, and laugh about uh, a lot of the things that happened in that time, knowing the, the strength that I gained from it as well. And one thing I ended up doing uh, at the end of the desert was, was just powering through it and almost stubbornly and in spite of uh, my loneliness. And uh, through a lot of times in my life, I, I find a strong connection with songs. And the songs kind of give me rhythm to my feelings, and the words become anthems to me. And there was a song by the band Tall Heights that I found myself just screaming, riding down the, uh, the road. So I'll, I'll share the end of that song. Uh, as it's so fitting to my, to my story. And it's, as I wake in the day when the sun is high in the sky, I'm sure I'm on my way, or at least I'm not living a lie. Only to find myself looking behind at the life for which I have been bound. Because in all of the ways I bury myself, I'm rising up out of the ground. Thank you. <laughs> In our final story of the evening, I tell of the week that begins with one of the greatest spectacles I may ever see, and it all goes south from there. <laughs> it was past closing time on a Wednesday in November, and the seventh time in a week that I sat on the same bar stool looking at the same television in the same shirt, skirt, and boot combination. It was just me and the assistant manager at this point, and I said to him, hand me a broom if you have to. This is my lucky underwear bar, and I am not leaving. <laughs> I didn't know if everyone else had split because they were being respectful of the bar's schedule or if they had just given up. I mean, the Cubs were favored to win, but it was the Cubs, and they had the game in their hands, and it was starting to look like they were just going to throw it away. <sighs> but then, holy shit, Martinez grounds to Chris Bryant, and he throws him out at first, third out in the tenth, and the game was over. The assistant manager gave me a hug and said, leave, go home. <laughs> So I walked, into the <laughs> I walked into the cold night air, just trying to wrap my head around the fact that I had seen something I never thought I was going to see in this lifetime. Holy shit, the Cubs actually won the World Series. <laughs> so I went to sleep that night a little sobby and a lot smiley. Um, but then on Thursday morning, I woke up with this weird feeling in my mouth. Um, 
I smiled in the mirror before I brushed my teeth, and my lips like kind of looked crooked, crooked enough to think, did I have a stroke? But nothing else really felt wrong with me, so I just blew it off. Later in the day, I had this vague ear pain, and my eye itched at like pink eye proportions, but again, not red, not watery. <sighs> By night, all these symptoms were still there, and I was so obsessed with stroke watch that I pulled out a bag of potato chips to do some high-quality stress eating because there was nothing I could do. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't taste the salt on the potato chips, like retail-grade potato chips. I, I couldn't taste it at all. And what is the point of eating potato chips if you can't taste the salt? So I was just like... Uh, something's not right, but I'm just going to go to bed and hope for the best in the morning. And uh, the thing is, though, every time I tried to close my eyes, my left eye would involuntarily pop right back open. So I grabbed my phone, and, and I hit the, you know, the voice dictate thing, and I said, taste alteration, comma, crooked smile, comma, itchy eye won't stay closed. <laughs> Bell's palsy. What? Can't be that. It can't be that. So I try it again. Taste change, comma. I won't close, comma. Crooked smile, comma. Bell's palsy. I was like, oh. all right, Google. Taste change. I won't stay closed. <laughs> can't taste salt. I had this argument with my phone a bunch of times, actually, and then finally I conceded, you know, I actually don't know what Bell's palsy is. So I googled that, and sure enough, every bullet point, yep, 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 that's me. But still, I was like, nah. Because, you know, the Google also told me that the United States, there's only a 1% incidence. So, like, is this really what I have? I was finally able to get my eye to stay closed, and as I fell asleep, I figured it'll probably be gone by morning. And I still seemed a little droopy in the mouth, and now my eye was also a little crooked when I woke up. But I was just trying to, uh, I was trying to convince myself, you're just imagining it. Like, you're fine. Besides, I had a high-priority errand that I had to do that day. In a couple days, I was heading to New York to meet a guy, and even though I was unsure if I was still into him at all, <laughs> whether I'd feel like making out or breaking up when I saw him, I needed to have fancy eyebrows for it. <laughs> so when the esthetician was done and handed me the mirror, I panicked. So, okay, I'm already a little skittish when it comes to my eyebrows. I have a scar under one of them. I'm very fearful of tinting. And uh, I have a healthy dose of personal shame that I even give a shit about my eyebrows in the first place. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I'm looking in the mirror and they're crooked. She can't see it, but I can see it so clearly. And I'm thinking, so clearly, I need to get to urgy care, like, right now. So after a few basic neurological and motor tests, the doctor told me, hold your breath. And I couldn't do it. See, when you have Bell's palsy, half your face is paralyzed. And so when you try to hold your breath like this, 
it just ends up being this. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So the doc said I had to go on prednisone, which is a no-joke steroid. And I have seen firsthand how it can turn the biggest sweetheart into the biggest raging asshole. And I didn't want to go to New York with crooked eyebrows and raging assholery. <laughs> but <laughs> they said it was the only drug that could treat it. So I was like, fine, I'll just take my chances. <clears throat> So my face had mostly righted itself back to normal by the time my plane landed on Sunday, uh, which was good because I don't think t Bell's typically uh, self-corrects that fast. But um, I'd also, I'd warned this guy, you know, I might show up to New York with a half-melted face. <laughs> um, but I wasn't able to get a good read as to whether he was going to be cool about it. He was a touring musician's roadie who lived on the East Coast, and we had started long-distance dating after his job brought him to Interlochen, and then Tinder brought him to me. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to be in New York now for work, and this week was essentially going to be our third date. <laughs> so as soon as I arrived at our hotel room, he sat me down in a chair, stared lovingly into my eyes, brushed his fingers across my cheek, and I just felt this unbelievable, building, indescribable rage about it. <laughs> the thing is, our fantastic connection had been in conversation only. Our earlier dates made it very clear that we were profoundly sexually mismatched. But both of us were into each other enough to keep trying. In this moment, though, I didn't say it, but I was definitely thinking it. Staring isn't a move. Where's your game, son? I just wasn't at all hungry for him. To be, if I'm being honest, I was really just hungry for lunch. I pretty much wanted to eat my way through New York, which is also a delightful side effect of prednisone. <laughs> but you know what, it honestly didn't take much convincing to flip the script from sexing to lunching because the look on my face when he suggested we have lunch at, Cap at Chipotle clearly was a boner killer. <laughs> so I did manage to convince him that being in New York City, why don't we eat somewhere that's not a national food chain? Uh, and we were actually, you know, where we went, we were having a pretty good time, and our chatter was pretty decent. But then he said exactly this about one of his children. She uses her depression as an excuse to sleep all day. So, yeah, I know, you know, awesome. <laughs> like, lists of fun things to do on a third date don't typically include eat a delicious meal at a funky luncheonette while lecturing him on mood disorders and empathy. <laughs> and it suddenly just clicked for me what my problem was with him. He was a nice guy. He was a very nice guy, but he wasn't kind. And I could almost physically feel this emotional detachment crackling between us, and I was pretty sure that this week was going to be the last time that we would spend together. But I didn't want to walk away from this, not just yet. I'd never really had much luck on online dating, <laughs> newsflash. <laughs> um, what were the chances that I'd meet a Tinder guy who seemed good enough that I would want to meet up with him for a vacation? 
Besides, election day was a few days away and universally nerves were high because the predictions of how it was going to end up kept shifting. Plus, this terrible drug had me so moody and so restless. Maybe I shouldn't make any big decisions right now. <laughs> Maybe I can stick it out for the week. So it was weirdly warm on Tuesday, like even for New York. It was almost 70 degrees, and there was an eerie cheerfulness in the air, one that almost made it seem like there wasn't this high-stakes election looming over all of us. And as he and I walked and walked and talked and talked all over the west side, I kept hoping that that eerie cheerfulness would like permeate me somehow and I could reconnect with how I had felt about him on the first and second dates and I was just not feeling it. Well, he didn't have to work that night, so instead we went out with two of his longtime uh, touring buddies. It was the kind of evening where, you know, you ask a lot of questions to try to get to know them, and you get one-word answers in response, and they don't ask any questions of you. <laughs> I know. It was all shop talk and private jokes and uh, me over-drinking margaritas. <laughs> and I, I, I couldn't really tell if my stomach was a knots from the one-two punch of steroids, tequila. <laughs> or if it was election jitters, or if it was my rage at what I was learning about his jackass friends. It wasn't that they had voted for someone who I was afraid was not a good choice for the country. I have friends of all political stripes. It was the reasons they had voted for him. She said she'd voted for Trump because she'd done some sort of work on The Apprentice, and how cool would it be to say that the president used to be your boss? <laughs> And he said he'd voted for Trump because how hilarious would it be to watch this country burn to the ground? <laughs> so by the time we went to the next spot, I had to tune them out and put my attention 100% on the election returns, which was really easy to do because this bar had giant, giant televisions, which is really good for sports, but when it's presenting, you know, rapid cuts from the disembodied head of one presidential candidate to the next. It's actually quite terrifying. Uh, but the crowd was really excited. Tammy, Tammy Duckworth won a Senate seat in Illinois, and everyone was cheering. And then Hillary was the projected winner for Delaware, and everyone was like, yeah, three electoral votes, man. <laughs> three. Each time it was called for blue, this roadie guy like got in his friend's faces and was like, ha, ha, ha. And I was, oh God, don't, don't, don't do that. I, it was making me so tense. It was so unnecessary and so ugly and it was becoming so clear that like their guy was gonna probably win. <laughs> um, so I just, at some point, I had to give up on the night. I, everything felt terrible. I felt terrible. Back at the hotel room, I put on pajamas to give the clear message of no touching. <laughs> Pulled the sheets to my neck, and I stared at the ceiling for what felt like hours until I fell asleep. And so it was on a Wednesday in November that I woke up in a New York hotel room just a few blocks from the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. Monday and Tuesday morning had been clattering with rush hour city sounds, but on this morning, all I could hear was the rain outside, and without checking the news, I already knew what had happened. 
So the Cubs winning the World Series may very well be one of the greatest moments in sports that we will ever see. And for many, many people, the outcome of the election could arguably be one of the most devastating political things they will ever see. A week with those bookends alone could very aptly be called a week on steroids. No actual steroids required. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And thank you to our guest MC for the December show, Elon Cameron. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in January, where our theme is Snowball. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 